already been appointed king, but here he's confirmed as king. He actually proves that he has God's hand upon his life at this juncture of his life. We're going to see in this chapter that, man, you know, Saul had a really, really good start. He really did. And we're going to see that very powerfully tonight. You know, and and I pray that we would learn, you know, from the things that he did that were good. But also I pray that it would be something that God would use in our life to, to help us not only start well, but to finish well. You need to get in line. You need to stay in line until you reach the finish line. Because look what we read here in verse 1. It says, And then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Jabesh Gilead. Where have I read that before? Oh, yeah. The last time we read of Jabesh Gilead, it was a story that was tragic. And here we see it's kind of ironic. Because the children of Israel had gone up against the children of Benjamin due to the perverted sin of Gibeah of Benjamin. And what had happened was the men of Jabesh Gilead, the guys that we're reading about today, did not come to fight in that fight. They didn't show up. And so now we see the tables are turned and they need men to show up on their behalf. For Nahash the Ammonite had come out and encamped against Jabesh Gilead and they were surrounded. And so what ends up happening is they're surrounded, they're besieged, and the men of Jabesh Gilead, they ask, is there any way we can work this out peaceably? You know, make a covenant with us and We'll kind of, you know, just be your servants, you know, and then we don't want to fight you, but we'll serve you. But look what happens. You're reading verse 2. It says, And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. And then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, then we will come out to you. I don't know if you can visualize that. Imagine that. You know, you're there and, you know, you're surrounded by your enemies. You want to work it out. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what. Sure, I'll work out a deal with you. Let me gouge out not just your eyes, but everyone's eyes. Take away half your vision. Cripple you from ever fighting back. And best of all, in the whole ruthless loss of your right eye, we will bring reproach on all Israel. One version says that they would bring disgrace on all Israel. You see, the Ammonites were descendants of Lot, according to Genesis 19.38. And at this point in history, they were pretty strong. The inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead must have known that alone they didn't have a chance. In other words, they must have known that or else they wouldn't even consider such a thing. You know, this guy Nahash, you read about him in verse 1, verse 2. His name means serpent. It's just a coincidence, right? No, it's the enemy. 
He's like the enemy. This guy was probably pretty bad, and apparently he had already been a threat. In all reality, this guy Nahash may have been the real root reason why the children of Israel asked for a king with to begin with. Because if you go over to chapter 12, look what it says in verse 12. Samuel speaking. He says, And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. And the Lord your God was your king. See, before they ever asked for a king, this guy Nahash was already coming against them. We just see it now kind of materializing there in Jabesh Gilead. This guy was pretty bad. The people were weak and they were afraid. Why? Why were God's people weak and afraid? Because they were not in right relationship with God. Huh? Remember, you guys, if you're not in right relationship with God, you won't have that confidence to know that he will defeat all of your enemies. And what will happen is your enemies will come in and they will bring you into bondage. They will hinder your ability to see. They will take away your spiritual vision and they will bring reproach upon you, your family, the ministry, and all the church of God, even the name of God, when we're not in right relationship with God. And so the so-called elders ask for seven days to see if they can maybe get some help. And so we read in verse 4, it says, And so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now, again, when you're, you know, looking at the names of these cities and you're kind of familiar with the Bible a little bit, this is really fascinating to me. It's fascinating that Gibeah is the place the people go. It's fascinating to me that Gibeah is the place that Saul is living because Gibeah was a place of perversity. Remember in Judges chapter 19, Gibeah was that close to being wiped off the face of the map. But apparently God had mercy on them. And what we find, you guys, woven into this word, it's not, you know, just random. It's not by coincidence. When we, you know, hear of Jabesh Gilead having a second chance, of, of Gibeah having a second chance, that woven into the word is this story of grace. God's reward at Christ's expense, his unmerited favor toward us, God giving us a second chance and maybe a third chance. Now, don't take abusive, you know, you know, mentalities and like, oh, just God's the God of the second chance. I'll just go ahead and sin. But you got to let that grace come in. You got to understand that God really is the God of the second chance, the merciful God and the gracious God. Because we see, you know, Jabesh Gilead doesn't deserve to be saved. And Gibeah, Gibeah does not deserve to save. And all of Israel, really, when you think about where they are right now, is in the very process of rejecting God as their king. They don't deserve to be helped out in any way. But what we find is that God really is a compassionate, long-suffering, and gracious God to us. And I just say that to any of you out there. I'm not talking about people who are hard-hearted and abusing God's grace. I'm talking to someone out there who maybe thinks that their sin is too much, that God can't forgive them. Someone out there who maybe thinks, you know what, I don't have a chance. It's over. I don't even know why I'm here. Yes, you do. God is a gracious God, a merciful God, a long-suffering God. 
And if you would yield your life, your heart, your soul, your everything to him, it is so amazing what God will do in and through your life. You know, here we find that these people come to Gibeah. It says in verse 4, and all the people lifted up their voices and they wept. I mean, there's probably some men weeping, but more than likely it's more women and children that are weeping. Either they're going to die or they're going to lose an eye. And as they cry, what ends up happening? Saul comes in from the field. He's been plowing. And Saul comes in and we see basically that he's moved with compassion. He asks, what troubles the people that they weep? And I love the fact that he cared when they cried. And here we see some really neat characteristics that kings and leaders should have. Number one, calloused hands. And number two, a soft heart. He's out there working in the field. The oxen, he's plowing the field. He's working hard. And we need to work hard. Maybe you're not, you know, the manual labor type, but you need to work hard. You need to work hard at prayer. You need to work hard at Bible study. You need to work hard at the ministry. Work hard in the roles and responsibilities that you have. They need to have calloused hands, and they need to have hearts that care. When we see people weeping, it should move us to compassion. How cool it is when the king, the leader, the pastor, the dad is a sensitive servant. Saul apparently started off that way. So we read in verse 6, notice it says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. One version said, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. You know, and I, and I think we know, and you know, we've got to know how vital it is that the Spirit of God is upon us and empowering us, and we're not walking in our own strength. We're like this guy catching a wave. We're like a, you know, a kite you know, catching the wind or whatever it is. We need to know that apart from the Spirit of God, there's no hope. I think that's vital to know. But I also think it's vital to know that we not only need the Spirit of God, we also need the anger of God. Because when the Spirit of God came upon Saul, he burned with anger. He was angry at sin. He was angry at injustice. He was angry at what was happening or what was about to happen to these people. Such a ruthless activity from a hideous king. And the king didn't have to do that. He could have brought him into slavery. He could have led him away and done his thing. But to gouge out their own right eye? And Saul saw that. And it brought him to anger. Nahash wants to do what to the people? And according to scriptures, it's okay to be angry at times, right? We know God gets angry. We read in Deuteronomy 4.21, the Lord was angry with Moses. 1 Kings 11.9, the Lord was angry with Solomon. The Lord was angry in Judah, with Judah, according to 2 Chronicles 28.9. As a matter of fact, I think I've told you guys probably too many times in Psalm 711. Does anybody know? The Lord is angry with the wicked every day. Every single day. 
Every single day he's angry with the wicked. We read about Jesus' anger in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, where he looked around it. He was grieved. And, he, you know, I don't know if mad dog is the right word, but he was just like so angry with them, right? He was angry at their hardness of heart. You see, Saul was filled with the Spirit, and this brought about the anger of the Lord because it's good to be angry at sin and injustice. Kind of like a, a holy hulk, if I could say that, man, you know? Because when the hulk gets angry, it transforms him, right? And what we need to do is now sanctify that and harness that godly indignation and transform our lives as well into strengthen us and arouse us and awaken us. It's good sometimes to be angry, but remember it needs to be a holy anger. And I need to say that because I can already hear someone say, see, that's me. The reason I'm ticked off and out of control is because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, right? I can hear some guys say that, right? And let me just say this, that it's good to be angry and not sin, It's good to be angry at sin, but it's not too good to be angry and sin. Remember that. Psalm 4.4 is quoted in Ephesians 4.26, and the Bible says, Be angry and do not sin. Having said that, I do hope and pray that we are angry at sin and injustice. It's a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit, as Saul was here. And sometimes that anger is necessary to get us off the couch and out of our comfort zones and into the battle because people are dying. People are crying. So many people are there at that place where the enemy wants to bring reproach upon the name of God and the people of God. And you and I need to get angry. So Saul got angry, and I like what we read It says in verse 7, And so he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. First there in Jabesh Gilead, They travel 50 miles, they go to Gibeah, and now the message goes out to all Israel. Saul wastes no time, he kills and cuts up the yoke of oxen into pieces that he sends throughout all the territory of Israel, and he sends a message with it as well. And he says, we're going to do the same thing to you and your oxen if you don't stand up and start fighting for what's right. You know, and there's probably a couple of statements there. Not only is it, hey, I need to rally the troops, but also, you know, I need to now, you know, take my farmer's hat off and put on the fighter's hat and do what God's called me to do because he cuts up his oxen, right? And it's so cool when you see this and how important it is. You know, the cool thing to see that I think is, is awesome, notice it says right there, and the fear of the Lord. Not the fear of Saul. The fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. You know, it's kind of funny how sometimes, even in the ministry, you know, they might, you know, have an overseer that, that you know, they're afraid of sometimes. And sometimes they're not. It's no big deal. 
But the fear of an overseer, the fear of a leader, the fear of a, a boss, the fear of a pastor, it's really not you know, what we need to have in our heart. We need to have the fear of the Lord, the fear of God in our hearts. You know, the fear of the Lord, it's a phrase that's found 27 times in the Bible, and here it is for the first time. The fear of the Lord. And it's an important thing that we need to have. The fear of God is the basic fundamental core of Christianity. We read in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you're in big trouble. The fear of the Lord for all the churches is essential in order for us to reach the lost. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Then the churches, so this is a plural, all the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You know, here we read that the fear of the Lord, it fell on the people and they came out, it says right there, with one consent. See in verse 7, the Hebrew word translated consent, it usually means, uh, usually translated man. And it literally says that they came out as one man. And again, so many lessons. How important it is to be united. How important it is to be one. Husband and wife, are you united? Are you one? Do you come out with one consent because the fear of the Lord is on you? Families, ministries, how important it is to be united. That healthy fear of God brings us to that place because I know this, that God hates division. And we need to fear the Lord. Now we need to answer the call to fight the good fight. I pray that we would want more of the war than we've had so far. And so what happens in verse 8, it says, And when he numbered them in Bezak, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And this is the last time in the Bible we read of this place called Bezek, which means lightning. But it's interesting that this was the book of Judges. This is where it began with victories in Judges chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. And so Saul sees the response. 330,000 men respond, committed soldiers. And now they send a message that they're willing to go on this mission. It says in verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And so it was, here it is, on the next day, that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. He gets the soldiers, 330,000, and you know the message was then sent that by the time the sun would be hot, some translations say right around 12 noon, because that's when the sun gets hot, right? Right around 12 noon, that help would arrive. 
The people of Jabesh Gilead were pretty happy about that, and they tell these guys, hey, you know what, tell you what, we'll surrender to you. It's all part of the plan, right? But these guys, even though they say that we're going to come by 12, what we find is that they actually attacked early in the morning. Uh, That watch would be somewhere between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. And most of you here are sleeping at that time, right? They were probably sleeping at that time, right? They came early in the morning, and they conquered and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. It was just a great victory that God gave them. It was a great victory. You know, Saul had a strategy. Number one, surprise. And number two, break up into three divisions. And what we find in that is that God gave him the victory and he offered his strategy. You know, when I read this whole story, and I don't know about you guys, you know, reading this right here, because this guy Nahash, the serpent, must have been powerful and strong. But it didn't take long, you know, maybe 10 hours to wipe him out. You know, when I read this right here, I don't know about you guys, I don't know if you've ever really noticed this, but Saul started off so good. Have you ever really acknowledged that? I know that I've heard in many Christian circles that Saul was the choice of men, that Saul wasn't the choice of God, and, you know, David was... But I think the only reason that Saul, you know, ended up the way he did in such tragedy, seeking the devil at the end of his life, losing the Holy Spirit, killing himself, killing his sons, it wasn't, it was fatalism, is because he went off track. You know, and when I read this right here, I don't know about you, I'm impressed with what Saul's doing. We don't read a whole lot about his spiritual life, but we sure do read about, a, about the Lord bringing victory through his life. And I see this right here, and I think, man, this guy had so much potential. So much potential. You know, here he is, filled with the Spirit. Here he is, caring about the people. Here he is, angry at sin and injustice. Here he is, rallying the soldiers, leading them to victory, even using strategy. Clearly, Saul was both affirmed and confirmed as the king of Israel, so much so that we read in verse 12, it says, And then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Remember, if you go back to chapter 10, remember what they said in verse 27? But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. Saul held his peace then, and Saul held his peace now. Here the people acknowledge God's sovereign selection of Saul as king, and therefore They want to kill the resistors to his crown, but Saul doesn't let them do such a thing. He shows them grace, and he gives God glory. Again, notice what he says right here. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today who has accomplished salvation? The Lord has. The Lord has accomplished salvation. And everything about him at this point in his life is just so right on. 
And it's a lesson for us. It's a warning for us. But not only do we need to, to get in line, we need to stay in line until we reach the finish line. And look what God can do through you. You know, my son was asking me, well, Dad, it couldn't have been Saul because, you know, David was from the tribe of Judah. And it says in Genesis chapter 49, you know, and, and I was telling him, yes, son, my what we find is that the Lord looked down the corridors of time and he saw what would happen. He saw how Saul would turn. He didn't choose Saul to make him turn. He chose Saul because he was the man. Of course, God knew or ahead of time what would happen. But you see, that's the way it is for us. I mean, God knows some of you here. I pray it would never happen, but you might have an affair. God knows. You think you'll never, you never will, but you will because you might take your eyes off the Lord. God knows that there might be some here that you're being used by God in such a powerful way and the day might come if he will put you on the shelf because you don't got your eyes on the Lord because you're going through the motions. It doesn't matter if you have the position. If you, you know, fall away, if you begin to neglect your personal relationship with God, your quiet time with him in the word and in prayer, God can take that position away like that. Because he loves you. It doesn't matter how we start. You know what? I mean, I, I, I read this right here, and I learn things about this. It's a good thing. I want to emulate a lot of these things that Saul did and the people did. But I also learn, man, that, you know, we got to make sure that we don't just start well, but that we, you know, play through the whole game, first, second, third, fourth quarter to the very end. Because if we get our eyes off the Lord, like Saul did, then what we find is that God, you know, he'll deal with us and he'll speak to us. You know, we're going to learn a lot as we go through the ministry of Saul and the the whole thing. You know, as we go through the chapters, we're going to see it doesn't take long. Chapter 12, you know, Samuel gives the big speech. Chapter 13, that's just two chapters away. Saul loses the kingdom. In God's eyes, it's stripped away. It doesn't take long. You know, when the Lord uses your life, it should humble you, not puff you up. But what happened with Saul is that Lord began to use his life and it puffed him up. He got prideful and then he got fearful. Here's God who had given him the kingdom and he just could not trust God, you know, to... Allow him to do what he needed to do in his life. So what ends up happening? Well, then they go to this place called Gilgal. In verse 14, it says, And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. This is all good. You know, to renew the kingdom in Gilgal. And all these places are so precious. You know, Jabesh Gilead, Gibeah, God shows us the lesson of grace. Bezek, that's when they had, you know, former victories. And Gilgal, if you remember, was the first place they, they hung out at. They camped when they came into the promised land. As a matter of fact, Gilgal, it means rolled away. And that was the time when God rolled away the reproach from Israel. 
You see, here's the enemy wanting to do what? Wanting to bring reproach. If I can just, you know, I don't care if they, you know, they go to church. They put a bumper sticker on their car. As a matter of fact, that might even help me. They say they're Christians. Cool. But then what ends up happening is when those Christians are not really living for the Lord in fellowship with God, empowered by His Spirit, when those Christians become just like the world, compromisers, then what happens? It brings reproach to the name of God. You know, when people hear the name of Jesus, when they hear the title of a Christian, in all reality, it should bring respect. That's the way it was in the very early stages. The Bible says that the non-believers were afraid of them. There was something about them that was just so right. But now, in the world that we live in today, the church is filled with so much compromise and hypocrisy that when you tell them you go to church, they almost laugh at you a lot of times. And you have to go against the grain of all the hypocrites that they've already encountered in their life. And you have to prove to them that you're real. But to me, it's a trip because here the enemy wants to bring reproach. And because of what Saul did right, they go back to where they were rolling away the reproach. Now Jesus means something. Now Christianity means something. It has substance to it. And they're back in Gilgal to do what? To renew the kingdom. This would bring to mind Joshua 4, 9 through 10, chapter 5, verse 9, when God rolled away the reproach. This is where they started as a nation. God had led them in the spring of their country, in the beginning of their country. When God brought them out of bondage and out of the wilderness, Gilgal was special. Gilgal was significant. Samuel said, let's go to Gilgal. Let's go to Gilgal and renew the covenant as a nation. Samuel saw what time it was. It was time for renewal. It was time for the restoration of the nation. The Hebrew word translated renew, it can also be translated repair or restore. And you read about it, especially in the books of Chronicles, where they repaired the altars of the Lord, where they restored the temple of the Lord. How God wants to do that. How some people, our lives are broken down and God wants to repair your life. He wants to restore your heart. He wants to renew you. Maybe it was when you were first a Christian. You were so on fire for God. And there was a love there. And sometimes we think, well, you know what? I can't do that anymore because I grew up and I grew out of that. And God says, no way. Never grow up and out of that. You know, there are some things about the past that we should forget. But there are probably some things about the past. When this was all brand new, that first love, when we came to Christ, that actually might be good to return to and to never, ever leave. And it can happen to anybody. You know, it happened to David, the one who loved the Lord so much. But he drifted away while he was king. He fell. But then he said in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew, same Hebrew word, renew a steadfast spirit within me. It was a prayer of Jeremiah for the nation of Israel. Again, using the same Hebrew word, in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21, 
Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. Samuel says, let's go to Gilgal. Let's renew the nation. And so we read there in verse 15, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. One version even says they were happy. They were happy. They were rejoicing. There was joy under the leadership of Saul. But it breaks my heart to say that this is the last time they will be happy. This is the last time that they will find joy under his leadership. And when I read that right there, to be honest with you, it just made me cry. It brought me to tears. Oh, what could have been. You know, and in our own life, you guys, in our own life, you know, what you know, what does the Lord want to do? What does he really want to do? It's like, you know, wake up. What does the Lord really want to do in our life? Because there is so much potential in our lives. You know, all of us are the same. James chapter 5 says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't think, well, it's because he's got, you know, this or she's got that. No, we're all the same. There's that potential in all of us to be sold out and surrendered to the Lord. And God can, you know, I don't know if the word happy is right, but the word joy is right. And the word, you know, understanding your calling and fulfilling that commission. You know, God can do such a great work. Under the leadership of Saul, he made a difference. You can make a difference. You can. And we need to see that potential. All I know is that there's a lot of lessons here. And one of the lessons is that we can't just start well. We also need to finish well. Remember I told you guys what Jesus said? Uh, They were wanting to give him some food. He said, no, I'm not hungry. My food is to do what? to finish the work. Do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. And when he died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. The enemy will do everything he can and anything he can just to get you off track. And that's why we have to be so close to the Lord. Paul the Apostle, when he died and they cut off his head, he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. How many books have you started and not finished? Hmm? 37, right? No, I'm just joking. How many projects at home did you start and never finish? Is that your nature? I pray that that would not be your testimony in life. God saved you. God loves you. God called you. God is willing to empower you. God will awaken you. 
God will allow his spirit to fall on you. Just like you got saved by faith, the spirit will fall on you by faith. All you got to do is believe. And you'll receive that power. He'll make you angry with sin. He'll make you sensitive to the cries and hurts and pains that this world is experiencing. You might say, well, I haven't seen anybody cry. Well, then where have you been? The whole world is crying without Jesus. And then God will use your life wherever you are in the kingdom. You know, maybe you won't be the king. I don't know. But you will be used by the Lord in his kingdom. It's good to get off to a good start, but it's better to stay on with a good heart. May God help us to get in line, to stay in line. For how long? All the way to the finish line. I pray, you guys, that we would learn from this. My prayer is that you would take this sheet that we did, and you know, and I know it's hard. You just want to go home and eat quesadillas. I understand that. But if you can, because this is what my prayer is, Lord, you know, I don't know about Calvary Chapel Almani. I don't know for sure. You know, I'll be honest with you. Part of me thinks that you guys are are are, are a little different. That you guys are, are 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 more focused. But I don't know for sure. Only God knows. And that's why I was just thinking, Lord, I don't want to just go and hear the study and go home, and you know, you're back to the old ways. We really need to search our hearts, you guys, because you know what? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He wants to find himself one man, one woman whose heart is loyal to him. And watch what he'll do when he finds that man. Wouldn't that be cool if he found all of us that way? I pray that we would know this. You know, I was talking to my son about this study. We were talking about it, and he challenges me in a lot of areas. He's all, Dad, you know, how come... When Saul got saved in the book of Acts, that they changed his name to Paul. And, you know, I said, you know what, Aaron, that's a good question. And and as a matter of fact, I think it even pertains to our study. I said, Saul means asked for. Saul means desired one. Saul is kind of like the one who's kind of lifted up. But here's the thing. When you study the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, when Saul's name was changed to Paul, it was when the Lord really began to use him. When he stepped out in faith and he talked to the demons, you know? And, and, and what you find is that he went from Saul, desired one, asked for, to Paul, which means what? You guys know what? Little. Little. And I was thinking, wow, that's the lesson of Saul, huh? You know, that that we would step out, that God would use our life for his glory and his kingdom and his honor and the people's good. And then when he does, that you and I would get little. (laughs) That you and I would humble ourselves and say, wow, Lord, thank you for using someone who's unworthy and unable that he may increase and that I may what? Decrease. John chapter 3, verse 30. That's my prayer. I don't know what's going to happen. I know we're living in some very interesting times. 
You have responsibilities with your family. Embrace them. Do it right. You have responsibilities in the ministry. Don't get sloppy. With the place that God has put you. You have responsibilities in life as a husband, as a dad, as a, as a wife, as a mom, as a single person who needs to stay pure. Make sure you take in good things. Take in the word of God. Spend time in prayer. Return to the Lord. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know the Lord, then you know the Bible says that you'll die in your sins. You're going to go to hell. But God doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to be saved. And so tonight what you need to do is humble yourself completely, genuinely, sincerely, totally acknowledge you need Jesus in your life. And if you're here for any other reason other than Jesus, some guys come in, they look for a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever, they want help financially, you know what, if you're here for any other reason, then you're missing out. I pray that all of us here would, you know, we would take the Lord with us, man. And that God would do a real, cool, deep work in our life. Father, I thank you so much for allowing us to just study your word today, Lord. And I pray that we would learn all these things, Lord.